So in college, I was a marketing major, and um, after college, for a time, I worked um, as a graphic designer and marketing consultant for an ad agency. And like my, my background and what I still love to this day, I just love logos. I love logos. I will stare at them uncomfortably long. And I will try to read meaning into stuff and try to figure out what they're trying to communicate. And one of my favorite kind of styles of logos is when a logo tells a story, but very simply, right? A very flat logo that has a message that it communicates and it looks cool all at the same time. And one of the things I love most is when a logo does that without you realizing it at first. Like those logos that you see a hundred times and you don't necessarily get the message, but down the road you start to figure out what they're communicating. You know what I'm talking about? The most famous example of this is FedEx. Um, FedEx has this legendary logo. It's 50-something years old. They use, very simply, they just use Helvetica New font. They space it like right together, the letting is right together, and, and, it's, and they, it's two colors. You know the FedEx logo, right? Everybody clear on this? But you know the hidden message, right? It's got the arrow. There's an arrow between the E and the X. If you've never seen this, now you, you can't unsee it. Um, once you see it, like that's the whole thing. It's, now it's always there for you. And the arrow, I actually read an article of the graphic designer who created that logo. And he said that he wanted to show, I kind of think he was lying. I kind of think like they just like years later, they're like, oh yeah, there is an arrow. Um, but he says it was intentional and he wanted to show forward direction, precision, and speed. And so you capture that in the logo. Another example is the Gillette logo. Um, Gillette, like razors. Um, I didn't realize this until recently. Again, it's another Helvetica new font. This is like the most famous font in, in advertising over the last 50, 60 years. Helvetica new. This is bold oblique in uh, the Gillette logo. And so it's got the italicized look. But the G and the I in the Gillette logo have like a cutout like a razor-sharp cutout across the letters. See what they're doing? Showing what Gillette... I love that kind of thing because once you... Like, you don't see it at first. There's a message they're intended to communicate, and sometimes you miss it, but once you see it, you can't unsee it. Okay, I had the same feeling the first time that I heard someone talk about the elder brother in this passage. This message was here the entire time, and I missed it. Over and over and over again. I've always known the younger brother. You don't want to be the younger brother. Don't run away. Don't squander it all. And I miss this other character that we're going to focus on exclusively tonight. But he was there the whole time. And probably the reason I missed him, honestly, is because I was him and I am him. And I conveniently didn't want to see myself in this passage. But once you see him, you can't unsee him. He's there. And we've got to consider his story tonight. So the way we're going to do this is we're going to consider two profiles. Um, The profile of self-righteousness and the profile of selfless love. So here's the first profile. When we meet the older brother in the passage, as we just read, he was coming in from the field. That's the first time he's mentioned. And he hears that bass thumping. Like he hears it from the distance. And he just hears this like party beat. And he's like, what is going on? And so he goes up to this like servant who's probably a young guy who lived on the property. And he was like, why is the bass thumping? And the guy was like, oh, you didn't hear? Your brother came home. And your dad threw this giant party. And he's so excited. And, he, and we're celebrating. But he was angry, Jesus said, and refused to go in. So the problem from the very beginning here is that he refused to go into the party. And you, you start to see there's a little suspicion about this guy. 
Because the cultural expectations of the time would have been that if, if there's a party being thrown for a member of the family, the older brother needs to be at that party. Like, it's only fitting if the whole village is there and they're celebrating something in your family. It's respectful for you to be there greeting them, like welcoming them through the gates, carrying on conversations, being a part of the celebration. If you had a problem with the point of the celebration, you hold that till later. But that's not what he did. He refused to go in. He was grumpy and he stayed outside. And so then what's even more shocking at this point is in the face of any humiliation that the father may have already felt from his younger son returning, which we did talk about last week, the, the father now faces more humiliation because his son's not in the party. And he goes out to greet him. Like he goes out to the son to welcome him back to the party. That's not normal either. We're going to get to the father in a second, but that in and of itself is not normal for him to do this. He would demonstrate displeasure, not um, you know, kindness in this moment. But that's what he did. He went out humiliating himself. And he goes to him and says, where are you? Why won't you come in? Now, compare this moment to how the younger son returns to the father, how he responds to the father versus the elder son responding to the father. Uh, in the beginning of the passage, the younger son, when his father goes out to him, he, he's overwhelmed by this response. And he goes and celebrates with him. But now the elder brother, he refuses to go in. Listen to how he responds to his father in verse 29. Um, I'll give some commentary again as we kind of go through this. He, first, he addresses him without a title. I don't know if you noticed that. He says, look. He didn't say, Dad. He said, look, these many years I have served you. Literally, that is, I have slaved for you. He says, I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. We'll read that and be like, yeah, he never gave him a goat. Um, That would have been a bigger deal to them than it would be for us. The idea, obviously, is that he wanted a party too. He's never had a celebration like this. But he says, he continues, when the son of yours came, doesn't mention his name, the son of yours, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, which is probably not even true. Now he's just adding on accusations. You killed the fattened calf for him. You hear the point. There's so much going on in his response. We're going to work through it over the course of the next couple of minutes. But what we have to see right off the bat is there is not one lost son in this passage. This is not the story of the prodigal son. This is the story of two lost sons. One went away in his rebellion and he was lost for a time. But the other stayed home. And he was just as lost, if not more lost. Out of fellowship with the father. He's not lost in rebellion. He's lost in his own self-righteousness, which may be worse altogether. Henry Nouwen, who I've quoted a lot in the last couple of weeks, he, he's the one who studied the Rembrandt painting and then wrote um, tons of stuff about it and wrote a book on it that I've been reading. And he says this parable, or this, this painting, might as well be called the parable of the lost sons. Not only did the younger son who left home to look for freedom and happiness in a distant country get lost, but the one who stayed home also became a lost man. Exteriorly, he did all the things a good son was supposed to do. But interiorly, he wanted away from his father. 
He did his duty, worked hard every day, fulfilled his obligations, but became increasingly unhappy and unfree. He did all the right things. He worked hard. He didn't leave home, but he's so painfully distant from the Father. And if you're anything like me, when you begin to consider the possibility that you might be someone who has read your Bible a lot, pray very regularly, do devotions, go to places like RUF, get involved in small groups, you've been on mission trips, you could have been around so much, yet be distant from the Father. That is a frightening thought. That is a frightening picture that Jesus gives us of this son who's doing the right things, but he's missing the father altogether. So how do we know if we're the elder brother? And that's what I'm going to spend the next few minutes on. I want to give you five different descriptions or characteristics that flow from the elder brother's life. Five different characteristics. Number one, we read in verse 28 that in response to his younger brother rejoining the family, he became angry. Anger. The first sign that you have an elder brother spirit is that when your life doesn't go as you want, you aren't just sorrowful or sad, but you are deeply angry or bitter. Elder brothers believe that if they live a good life, they should get a good life. That God owes them a smooth road if they try really hard to live up to his standards. But what if you're an elder brother and things go wrong in your life? And you feel like you've been living up to your end of the deal with God. Like you're very moral or you're not doing what those people are doing. Or you're very religious. Then you will be furious with him if things don't go the way that you feel that they should. Or you take it actually internally. If you don't feel like you're living up to your own standards, you're furious with yourself because you know better. There's a lot of self-anger as well in the elder brother. Anger becomes a regular characteristic of an elder brother's life. So if this is you, your, your inability to handle suffering or disappointment arises from the fact that your moral observance is results-oriented. The good life is lived not for delight in good deeds themselves, but as a calculated way to control your environment. You know what I mean? It's like we believe that um, God is a snack machine. That we walk up to, we punch the button, we put in our money, we punch the button, and we expect my white cheddar popcorn to come out. And like we apply that spiritually. I put in, I put in, I put in, look what I'm doing. And we push the button. And it's not like the results that I expect aren't coming to my life. Anger can show us where we simply aren't trusting God to be our Savior. But rather we're counting on him to be like some karma-like Santa Claus that hopefully everything will work out the way I want it to. Tim Keller says convictingly about this passage. He says, if like the elder brother, you believe that God ought to bless you and help you because you work so hard to obey him and be a good person, then Jesus may be your helper or your example, even your inspiration. But he's not your savior. You're serving as your own savior. Second characteristic. He has a strong sense of his own superiority. 
I don't know if you noticed, but he points out how much better his record is than that lover of prostitutes. Again, which probably wasn't even true. He hasn't spent any time with a brother at this point, And he just throws this out there because he believes he's above it. If you base your self-image on hard working or being very moral or being members of a certain group or extremely smart or savvy, then this will inevitably lead you to feeling superior to those who don't have those same qualities. And so you become deserving and divisive and start to put others down. Elder brother lostness creates things like racism and classism. It creates smaller communities of people who agree with me. Lots of inner circles and cliques. It it becomes very easy to look around and feel better with our little group, especially when our little group looks so much better than those people out there who haven't quite made it as far as we have into our little group. You know what I mean? And for what it's worth, I literally mean our little group. This could be an RUF problem, couldn't it? This could be literally a problem in this room. Some of us can be filled with a sense of self-righteous pride because you talk a certain way or you do a certain study or whatever. And that pride causes us, me, to think that I need the gospel a little less than someone else. And people, by the way, your roommates, your classmates, they sniff that stuff out and they don't want anything to do with it. Like if that's your religion, then what's the point? And they, they, they feel that. Um, I remember so vividly once when I was meeting with a group of RUF students when I was at uh, the campus I was at before here. This was years ago. And I was asking a group of leaders in that organization, in that ministry, um, what would you like to see happen in RUF this year? And I remember this sweet little girl in that room, sweet girl, um, as innocent as she was and as sheltered as she was, say, I just wish more sinners would come to RUF. I know what she meant, but I also know what she said. How guilty can we be of the same kind of attitude? That's elder brotherness, right? Superiority. Those people out there. Here's number three. This is related um, to the last one, but the elder brother also has an unforgiving, judgmental spirit. Um, In the story, the elder brother can't pardon the younger brother for the way that he's weakened the family's place in society or disgraced their name or diminished their wealth. Do you have difficulty forgiving people who don't live the ways that you want them to live? Even the ways that you know that are better for them, do you have difficulty forgiving them or that if they've hurt you? Do you put people below you and even kind of hold them there just to make sure they know? Just to make sure they know that they don't have it together as much as you do. Elder brotherness paints all of our relationships with competition, with envy, with jealousy, with resentment. Maybe you can't seem to keep close friends and you keep wondering why. You kind of jump from friend group to friend group. And, and, or maybe no one seems to open up to you. No one's honest with you. You feel that you have so much to offer them if they would just listen. Yeah, that's, that's elder brother. Number four. He has a joyless, fear-based compliance. The elder son boasts of his obedience to his father. 
But I don't know if you heard it. He lets his underlying motivation slip out when he says, all these years I've been slaving for you. Again, this is Henry now, and he said, in this complaint, obedience and duty have become a burden, and service has become slavery. Obedience and duty have become a burden, and service has become slavery. Does your obedience or your pursuit of God come from a fear of disappointing Him? Or a fear of disappointing some spiritual leader in your life? Are you mostly motivated in your own kind of moral life by a fear of consequences of what will happen if you don't or if you fall? For an elder brother, religious and moral duties are a great burden, often a crushing one. Emotional frustration, um, inner boredom, elder brothers are under great pressure to appear even to themselves to really have their act together. To be happy and content while often hiding in shame. In my experience, in my own life and in ministry, elder brothers often struggle more with the secret sins than with the very public ones. And it makes sense because you don't want people out there to think. And so you're going to struggle more so with like pornography than like getting smashed this weekend. Because people aren't going to know about this and they're going to see that. Elder brothers, you know, struggle with things like gossip or changing depending on the group that you're with. It's like chameleonism. Or telling people that your relationship's going really well. And that you're definitely setting a Christ-like example in your dating relationship when in reality between you and your boyfriend and girlfriend, you know, it's just not the truth. This is the reason that sometimes moral elder brothers will blow up their lives and to the shock of everyone who know them, they just kind of throw off their chains and their obligations and begin living like younger brothers. I don't know if you've ever seen that before. It's tragic. And it really could be avoided because the central issue is the same. There's one more characteristic. Um, number five is he has no assurance of the father's love. And this is maybe the most devastating. The elder brother, even though he's the heir, the heir of the family treasure, he complains and says, you never threw me a party. As long as you're trying to earn salvation by controlling God through goodness, you'll never be sure that you've ever been good enough for him. You simply aren't sure that God loves you and delights in you. Or if God's love is abstract and has little real power in your life, then you will crave acceptance and approval from anywhere else you can get it to bolster your self-value. And because of this, criticism doesn't just hurt your feelings, it's devastating to you. And so if you, and this is something I very much struggle with on a regular basis, if, if you take criticism as like you are now devalued as a human being, because I just questioned that in your life, it's because we're not getting value from the only place we can. It's because we're missing the assurance of the Father's love. Other ways that that kind of works itself out, if you aren't sure of the Father's love, then you also have this irresolvable guilt. Uh, you, even after you do something that you know is wrong, and, and perhaps you like confessed and repented of it, yet you still just feel horribly about it. You're tormented. That's no assurance of the Father's love. And, and the other characteristic there is if, if you don't think the Father delights in you as a son or daughter, then you'll have a very dry prayer life. Though you may pray, because you're supposed to, 
it is not filled with awe or wonder or delight or intimacy with God at all. It's way more of a business-like relationship or an exchange, putting in the money, pressing the button. And it's not a relationship with a loving father or friend. Now, um, you may read through that list and think, check, 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 check. Those are hard characteristics, right? I just went through a lot of stuff. Um, It has to be that way for now. Because Jesus doesn't let anybody off the hook. Remember, he's talking to two different groups of people. We read in the first two verses. He's talking to tax collectors and sinners. That's the younger brother. And he's talking to Pharisees and scribes who think they've got it down. That's the elder brother. And most likely you're one or the other. And then the parable just ends with a cliffhanger. And we don't even know how the elder brother responds. Will he repent? Will he come into the party? Will he be left out, remaining lost in his own sense of self-righteousness? And I would say some of you maybe feel trapped too. You've lived your life in order to be good and you realize that that's not the way to enter the Father's love after all. But you don't want to like then turn the other way and just go like live in rebellion because that's not the way to the Father's love. So what is it? Again, here's Keller. He, when he said, when you realize that the antidote to being bad is not just being good, and the answer to being good isn't being bad, then you're on the verge of understanding Christianity. Because Christianity is something else altogether different. So what is it? Have you found yourself? What do you do with your lostness wherever you are on this scale? The answer for both is in the second profile, and we'll be much more brief with this. The answer for both the younger brother and the elder brother is in the profile of selfless love. This is the father. And I want to give you three things to notice about the father, about his love. One, see the initiating love of the father. Initiating love. The loving father in the story goes out to both of his sons. So important. He goes to them. He runs to the younger brother and cuts him off mid-sentence. He leaves the party. Setting aside his own reputation, he leaves the party and goes out to the elder brother. The father goes after his sons. We've been talking about this all along, but it's so clearly demonstrated here that the sons don't repent And then the father draws near to them and loves them. That's not the order. Do you notice? The father responds in love to their sin. And one draws near, and we don't know yet about the other. That's the order. We love because God first loved us. Our drawing near to him comes only as a response to understanding his love that pulls us close. He initiates. That's what the Father does in this passage. The second thing about the Father is see the costly love of the Father. This party is a huge party. He calls for the fattened calf to be killed. It's the best of the best, the most expensive delicacy at his disposal. And he's willing to give it all up in order to celebrate that his lost son has returned. The robe, the ring, the shoes, all this stuff is costly stuff. That he's happy to give up. And this father was willing to set aside his reputation, his pride, his comfort in order to show both of his sons how much he loved them. No cost was too much for him to give up. 
Now, I alluded to this last week, but let me say it more explicitly this week. There is a cost incurred on someone else in the story as well. The hint comes in verse 31 when the father says to the elder brother, Son, all that is mine is yours. And that is literally true. Because nothing at this point belongs to the younger son. Because he's blown it. Literally, everything that is left of the fathers belongs to the elder brother. So, who's paying for the party? It's actually the elder brother. Isn't that an interesting plot twist in Jesus' story? The party comes at the cost of the elder son. Here's the reality. Grace is not free, right? It's not free. It is costly. Someone has to pay for forgiveness to really be offered. Someone has to pay for the party to be thrown. And in this case, the payment comes at the expense of the elder brother. Now, why would Jesus do this? This is, um, this is the last time I'm going to quote from Keller's book. And a lot of these quotes come from his book called The Prodigal God, which just goes through this story um, really well. And this is a long quote, but listen to him summarize this point. He says, Jesus puts this in to show the Pharisees what they look like and to make us long for a true elder brother. A true elder brother would say, I'm going to search for him. I'm going to find him. And if he's blown it, I will bring him back at my own expense. But he doesn't do that in this passage. He is selfish and angry and he is lost. But Jesus gives us a bad elder brother so that we will long for a right one. We don't just need an elder brother to go into town to find us, but we need someone to come from heaven to earth. We don't just need an elder brother to bring us into his family just at the cost of his wallet, but at the cost of his life. Because on the cross, Jesus was stripped naked so that we could be clothed with a robe of honor that we don't deserve. On the cross, Jesus called out, my God, my God, because at that moment, he was not being treated as a son. So that you and I could be treated as sons and daughters. There he paid the debt that deep down we know we all owe. He paid the debt so that he could bring us home at at an enormous expense to himself. See the costly love of the Father given to us through the costly sacrifice of His only Son. And I end with this one. See the welcoming love of the Father? If we begin to see the love of our Heavenly Father as modeled for us in this passage, whether you're the prodigal younger son or the self-righteous older son, the love of the Father should make us melt into hopeful repentance, to reconciliation, and really should change our motivations for pursuing obedience To love the way He calls us to love. To fight sin the way He calls us to fight. To worship the way He desires to be worshipped. And so if you're the younger brother, the invitation is to come home and enjoy the riches of your father. The things that you're seeking out there in the far country, He offers to you so much more than that, even at home. And if you're the elder brother, you no longer have to work to prove yourself to everyone around you. Or compare yourself to other people to feel better. Instead, you can take a deep breath. You can repent of these sins of pride and arrogance or self-reliance and rest in the only one who actually is self-righteous. And that's to rest in Jesus. Most of us spend our whole lives working to prove ourselves. We exhaust ourselves as we try to convince people that we deserve to be accepted. But the gospel of grace frees us from this compulsion when we 
operate from a place of assurance in the love of God rather than in our own ability to measure up, then for once we are truly free. And so we don't have to wait outside the party, mad at the world, hoping somebody will notice all of our pouting. But we go in and rejoice that the true elder brother has come and rest in his finished work on the cross and to believe that we really are never so bad that we stand outside of the reach of God's grace and you are certainly never so good that you stand outside of the need of God's grace. Um, I want to apply this in one more way before we end. And this may sound strange, uh, but I literally want to apply it to myself. <laughs> like, I, I need to apply this passage to me. Um, and so I'm just going to a bit of like verbally process some of the things that I've been thinking through uh, as I've worked through this. Because I clearly identify more um, with the elder brother than I do with the younger brother. Um, which is why I think I've conveniently missed him all along the way. But now I can't unsee him in this passage. I can't unsee me. And so as I've been working through this one, uh, I prayed at one point over the weekend, um, which was a dangerous prayer, I've come to realize. I I prayed, um, God, show me where I have been the elder brother at some point in my life. And, And the reality is I have never not been the elder brother at any point in my life. Like, that's the answer. Um, I'm, I am him so often. And this is the specific instance that, that's come to mind. And I realize, like, I literally need more healing. And so I'm just going to literally work through this thing with you as I process in this. Um, so when we um, have the opportunity to move here, this, our life, you know, has been an upheaval for the last six, seven months. Um, but I got this job opportunity probably back, it was in April late March, early April, that we decided we were moving to Clemson, we're going to do RUF at Clemson. And so I accepted the job, and we began the process of moving our family from North Alabama to here. And there's so much that had to happen, like so much that had to happen uh, for us to move. Um, It was a huge whirlwind. Um, One of the biggest things that had to happen is we needed to sell our house in Madison, Alabama, right outside of Huntsville. And we owned it for five years uh, we bought this house in a great neighborhood, kind of a starter home community. The house was in great shape. Uh, we owned it for five years. It's in a growing community. It should have been easy to sell, and it really kind of was. But we also worked our butts off for like a month or more, kind of getting everything ready to go. We, did, we repainted stuff. We fixed a few things. Uh, we hired the realtor. We spent all these hours working through what we needed to do. We took all those fancy pictures. Uh, we did the whole thing. Like we, we did it the way that we thought we were supposed to do it. And, um, and we invested a lot of money and time into those final weeks. And because we needed to do well in the house, like we needed to sell it to be able to move here. And then we needed to sell it for a certain amount of money so that literally we could afford to live here. Um, this place is a lot more expensive than Huntsville, Alabama. And so uh, with the advice of our realtor, we were able to list our house at $25,000 more than we bought it for, which is great uh, for five years that it had uh, moved along that much. So long story short, or short story long, depending on how you look at it, um, summer conference. So I was down at summer conference the same week that many of you were there, and that's the we had just listed the house a couple days before summer conference. I'm at summer conference, and I'm on the phone all week. If you saw me at all during that week, if I wasn't being the MC at night, I was on the phone during the day just walking around talking to our realtor because we had a bidding war. It was awesome. It was so much fun. 
felt like I was on TV. And so we were putting these people up against each other, and, and we ended up getting this particular offer that worked for us, and it was going to be $20,000 more um, than we had bought it for. So that's, that's a good profit, and that's, that would help with the down payment as we move here. So we accepted the offer. We got the closing date. I called the moving company, got all that set up. We were ready to go. And uh, it was – so we then go through the next few process. I need to skip some of these details, but you have to go through all the different things. You've got to fix a couple more things and do all the stuff. And, and then the appraisal comes, and this is the most important part at the end of the process. And the appraisal came about a week before the closing date. And we didn't hear back from the appraiser. It was just radio silence. And our realtor kept trying to get in touch with them, what's going on, what's the value. And the appraiser, what they're supposed to do is confirm the value of the home, essentially what you have contracted to sell it for. And then... Um, it was literally the day before the moving truck was to be dropped off at our house that my realtor calls me and she says, I've got some really bad news. Appraisal finally came through. And they appraised the house at $20,000 less than our contract price. And if you're following the math, that means that we're back to what we bought it for five years ago. Um, we've invested thousands of dollars into this house. We've got no, like, we don't have savings. Like, we've got no other plan. And we had no other thing we could do. Like, that was it. Um, we, had, we had to take, I mean, there's nothing you can do at that point. So we had to take it. And so literally, this is what is almost a joke. We sold our house for $100 more than we bought it for. $100 more than we bought it for. Um, yay to profit. Um, <laughs> No, it was a net loss. And here's what I felt, and here's what I realized I still feel. You ready? This is what I feel. Look, these many years I've been serving you, you know? Like, I moved my family from Troy, Alabama to go to seminary. Like, I moved my family from seminary to Salt Lake City, Utah to be a pastor. Like, we don't do this for much money, but we need a little bit of money. And we then moved our family from Salt Lake City to Huntsville to do RUF, and I was excited about that. And now we've got an opportunity to do Clemson RUF. So exciting, and we're, we're wanting to live there. We're excited about it. We just need, we just need that down payment. And I, just, I felt that. And I feel that, like the elder brother, I'm just saying to God, and you never gave me a single dollar to have a celebration with my friends. Like, there's so many areas in my life where I know that I feel this. That's just the one that is so vivid for me. And so if you identify with me as I identify with this elder brother, I want to give you one other application that I came across. I know I'm getting a little bit long with this, but this has just been so comforting and encouraging to me because that's not a good place to be, by the way. Look, that's not a good place to be. As a pastor, as a Christian, as a son of the Father. So here's the... Last encouragement. That Henry Nouwen guy that I keep talking about. Henry Nouwen was a Dutch Catholic priest um, in the 20th century. He died in like the 80s or 90s. And he was the guy who did all the studying about Rembrandt's depiction of the prodigal son's return. And literally, he went to this, this extent. He was so interested in this story and in this painting that he went to St. Petersburg, Russia, to the museum where the painting was kept. And he like literally rented out the room um, where the painting was, and he just sat there. Like They pulled in a chair, and he just sat there. And this is like Geneva's dream come true. Uh, for, for like two or three days, 
undisturbed, and he just stared at it. And he journaled, and he prayed, and he cried, and he thought through kind of all the different movements of this story as depicted in Rembrandt's painting. And then he wrote a book about it. And he wrote a book about all of his emotions through that. And that's what I've read over the last couple of weeks. That's why I've been quoting him so much. And as he concentrated on the elder brother, this is what I'm in with. He looked at the elder brother and he saw his face. It's just plain. Like there is no expression on the face of the elder brother in that painting. The, the younger son is broken. He's in his father's chest laying against him. The father is comforting him. But the elder brother, he just looks at it. Like he just has this disdain on his face. And so Henry Nowen said, when he looked at that, he realized that there, there's a path forward for that elder brother in that moment. And the story ends with a cliffhanger, but our lives don't have to. And there's a path forward for those of you who, like me, identify with the elder brother. And he said, the path forward for the elder brother is trust and gratitude. I think this is so brilliant and so helpful to my heart. It's trust and it's gratitude. Here's what he said. Trust and gratitude are the disciplines for the conversion of the elder son. Trust and gratitude reveal the God who searches for me. Burning with desire to take away all those resentments. To take away all the complaints and to let me sit at his side in the heavenly banquet. The path forward is trust and gratitude. For me, it's trusting that God really is good. Like that he's called me to himself. He's named me as a son. And that he's called me into ministry. To trust that he is good to my family in the ways that he has continued to be over and over again. That he will provide for us, down payment or not. I can trust him so much more than I can trust money. That I can trust my plan. That I can trust security. That I can trust my knowledge or experience or reputation or connections. I can trust him. That's the way forward. And the other thing is gratitude. That I could pout and take sorrow in my circumstances and I could just stand there like the elder brother just looking. Or you can think for a minute. Of all that God has done. Gratitude. Gratitude really is the antidote for uh, being entitled. Gratitude. What God does daily. The friends that he's given me. The family that he's given me. The experiences. The community. The regular provision through the years. My God will meet all of your riches. My God will meet all of my needs according to his riches. According to Christ Jesus. Um, that reality, to hear him say to you and me, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. What joy and hope and life that brings to us to trust, to have gratitude. That's the way forward for the elder brother. And so if you're there, hopefully that's helpful to you as well. Let me pray for us. God, we really do struggle to believe this. I do. You've given us an incredible picture, a very difficult one to wrestle through. This elder brother who we don't know how the story ends. But you've called us into some examination. So I pray for any students here who identify with either of these characteristics. 
and either of these characters in this story, I pray that they would see a path forward to a loving Father who runs after them. Their hearts would melt with His love, with Your love, Your initiating love, Your costly love, Your welcoming love for Your people. So I pray that we would know that and believe it even this week, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.